great we enjoy being together. If this, is, if this is your first time with us, you might like that we rent a theater, even occasionally call it home, that you can see people when you come to Sunrise from every conceivable place and background. You can shake hands with a weekday businessman who's now you know, dressed up in a soccer kit and sandals or slippers, some of you might call them. Uh, you can wave afar from someone who's all geared up from what looks like a cycling event, and that's because they might have been in a cycling event. They came here to church this morning. We're glad to have them. You might give a big bear hug to a guy who looks like he still has his PJs on, and it might be because he does. Um, either way, I possibly wonder as well, who the heck is running this circus? All right, This is uh, just a hodgepodge of people, and the answer is our chief shepherd, Jesus Christ. He wants to lead through under-shepherds, or mini-shepherds, <laughs> called elders. Uh, the Holy Spirit has selected four under-shepherds to embody the care of Jesus towards the people of Sunrise. Those people, specifically, are Gordon McRae, uh, Kevin McCormick, uh, Brett Wendell, we met earlier, and myself. And we have three more guys who are currently undergoing a season of training, testing, and discernment for whether God's calling them to be elders too. And certainly we, we lead in weakness with some trembling, but the elders are called to know, feed, lead, and care for the people whom God has entrusted to them. And so the Apostle Paul says to a young man, a pastor named Titus, he says, appoint elders in every town. Now in that time, there was one church in every town, especially because we are a non-denominational church without the benefit at times or the burden at other times of denominational oversight. We have an extra onus on us as elders to lead and protect the saints by weighing God's word on matters that make a difference to our growth and godliness. So sometimes the Word of God and the activity of the Holy Spirit will lead us to unity and consensus. Other times, we'll investigate the Word of God on an issue, but we won't come to a consensus. Sometimes it's clear that we'll come to an agreement, but because we don't want to distract from the main thing that we're about, introducing people to Jesus, helping people grow by His grace, we're not going to make it an official church stance. So we might agree about it, we don't want to make it an official church stance or policy. We have an example this morning. We dedicated babies and infants. All right? Not to mention their parents, and we were dedicated as well, right? But we did not baptize them. Though we've received requests in the past to do so, not to mention perform its Anglican cousin christening, we don't do that as a church. Why? Because the elders have spent months pouring over God's Word, gathering wisdom from good teaching, and spending time in prayer on a matter. And then, having looked at it, we decided, okay, does God want us to move forward in helping His people grow in this? And we've done so with the issue of baptism. All right, here are some conclusions we've come to as elders. As a church, we will not baptize babies or infants. All right, though we respect and will not pressure 
Christians whose convictions are otherwise, provided that conviction is that infant baptism anticipates God's care for that child through the family and through the local church family, okay? Not that baptism somehow saves the infant or provides this sort of security promise that now this child will one day trust Jesus. So if we ever ask you why be baptized or why baptize your child as an infant, it's not because we don't necessarily agree with your conviction or we won't support you. It's because we fear that you might somehow put security in this baptism. You might somehow think, because I've done this, my child is safe. We, we love you too much to do what we see Scripture saying otherwise. Okay, So that's the first conviction. Secondly, we'll also baptize people of any age. A person of any age who demonstrates a genuine trust in Jesus and furnishes evidence that the Holy Spirit's at work in their life. That means we don't have an age restriction. And that's a, that's a change. We used to kind of say, you know, give people a certain age, 10 or 11. We're now saying we don't have that restriction anymore. Uh, based on sort of some things we looked at in Scripture. And we're going to tease out more next week sort of what that looks like in terms of how we can help shepherds, especially kids and children, through the process of whether or not they've really trusted Jesus. Okay, so based on these conclusions about baptism, the elders encouraged me to teach on this matter. So the next two weeks, I will do so. As the elders uh, deliberated and, and as I studied ever since, especially in the book of Acts, which is the story of the church, which is uh, the first history book about the church. A word has kept coming to mind about, first of all, our salvation through the gospel, and also baptism, which is like the onstage play of what the gospel does in our life. So we're going to talk about the gospel and baptism over the next two weeks. And the word that keeps coming to mind as I've looked at this issue is the word compelled. See, the elders concluded that we ought to trust God's Word so much that when a new Christian reads it, they'll be compelled by that Word to show what the Gospel has done through baptism. And backing up a little further, that a person's decision to trust Jesus through the Gospel ought not be compelled by fear from even well-meaning warriors, nor should a person be cornered, a kid be cornered, or pressured by their parents or Sunday school teachers to trust Jesus but that the good news about Jesus should compel them. So that's where we're going to start. Next week, we're talking more about baptism specifically, the visible and outward demonstration of what the gospel's done for a person. This week, the gospel and how we, like the early church, can trust it to compel people. To trust it to compel people. So open your Bibles, if you would, to Acts chapter 8, starting in verse 26. Again, the book of Acts is our first history book about the church. Every church has come from the churches we see in Acts. What a humbling thing. What a cool thing to think that our church on the family tree has derived from the church in the book of Acts. Awesome, awesome, awesome reality. It's our history. And in this book, Jesus' last words to his disciples, in which he outlines his strategy for rescuing people. He says, here's the strategy I'm going to use. 
to rescue people through my good news. He says, number one, you will go to people. Starting in this city, and then in the outlining cities, then in those cities you never think about going to, and finally you're going to go to the ends of the earth. That's the first way you're going to reach people. The second way, you're just going to tell people what you've seen. You're going to be my witnesses. You're going to tell people what I can do in their lives. And then he gave a third strategy. He says, I'm going to give you the Holy Spirit so that when you share with people the good news about what I've done with them, I'm going to go to work and compel people through my Spirit. In other words, you don't have to pressure people, corner people. You don't have to plead with them or beg them. I'm going to give you God the Holy Spirit. So that's his sort of three-part strategy. And that's what we're going to see a man named Philip who loves Jesus do in this story. So starting in Acts chapter 8, verse 26, we'll read through verse 40. Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, Rise and go toward the south to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. You've heard of both those places probably in the news at some point. This is a desert place. And he rose and he went. And there was an Ethiopian, a eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all her treasure. He had come to Jerusalem to worship and was returning, seated in his chariot. And he was reading the prophet Isaiah. And the spirit said to Philip, go over and join this chariot. So Philip ran to him. And he heard him, because people used to read out loud in that time. He heard him reading Isaiah the prophet. And he asked, hey, do you understand what you are reading? And the eunuch said, how can I, unless someone guides me? So he invited Philip to come up and sit with him in the chariot. Now the passage of the scripture that he was reading was this. This is from Isaiah chapter 53. Like a sheep, he was led to the slaughter. And like a lamb before its shearer is silent, so he opens not his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation? For his life is taken away from the earth. And the eunuch said to Philip, about whom, I ask you, does the prophet say this? About himself or about somebody else? Then Philip opened his mouth, and beginning with this scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. And as they were going along the road... They came to some water. At that point, the eunuch said, See, here is water. What prevents me from being baptized? And he commanded the chariot to stop. Then when they both went down into the water, Philip and the eunuch, Philip baptized him. And when they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord carried Philip away, and the eunuch saw him no more. He went on his way rejoicing. But Philip found himself in Azotus. And as he passed through, he preached the gospel to all the towns until he came to Caesarea. Okay, God's word, and we're going to spend two weeks on this. And by the way, I hope you see that what I've shared, even the pattern of the book of Acts, what we see here in Philip, is the pattern of God's rescue plan repeated. Philip goes, right? He goes as the Spirit leads him. He shares clearly, and then he waits for this eunuch, this man, to respond first, doesn't he? Because Jesus said to Philip and to all the apostles, go, share clearly what you witness, trust me to compel people. If this good news is so good, I'm going to compel people. And Philip was compelled 
because of what Jesus did for him. The Father told Jesus in heaven, go. Go to Philip and, of course, to others. Make clear how you want to save people and then make the way clear for them to know me forever. And then Jesus waited. Didn't he wait? He waited for people to respond. All these sighs you see when reading the gospel because of the unbelief of the disciples, Jesus patiently waited and he waited and he waited. He compels them with this unbelievable, fantastic, almost impossible to believe it's true, but it is good news. And that's what he can do through us who trust him. So first, we're going to see a great message. What Jesus has done for us compels us to likewise go. In fact, Jesus says to his disciples in Matthew chapter 28, verse 19, go and make disciples. Go and make people like you. Jesus says at the end of John, Gospel of John, chapter 20, verse 21, just as the Father has sent me, so I send you. Why is such a mission compelling to Philip? I'll tell you again. John 1, 43. The next day Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip, and there he said to him, follow me. You see? Jesus went to Philip. Jesus found Philip. So Philip experiences Jesus going to him. He's compelled by Jesus' plan to rescue others. Therefore, it's no surprise that this passage begins and ends with Philip going. He is going, he is going, he is going. Look at this starting in verse 26. The angel of the Lord says, rise and go, Philip. So what does Philip do? He rose and he went. He gets to, not, not of course knowing what's going to happen. He's just staying prayerful. He's watchful. He knows he's going to be sharing with people about the good news. He wants to be ready for that. The Spirit said to Philip, go to that man. So what does Philip do? He goes to that man. So after this amazing encounter, skip down to verse 40, where we see Philip just right, keep right on going. Philip found himself at Azotus, and as he passed through the, all these towns, he preached the gospel there to all these towns. He keeps going and going and going. Now I recognize as we come to this passage, one of the fascinating parts and potential dinner conversations are the angels and the eunuch. Right? It's very interesting. We're going to talk more about it next week. That is not the main point of what Luke through Acts is trying to draw our attention to. It is this, that everybody from heaven is on the same page about this mission. Jesus, who says to go to the ends of the earth, including the people of Ethiopia. The angel of the Lord, who says go. The Holy Spirit, who says go to that man. All of heaven is on the same page with this strategy to go. So what does Philip do? He responds, he goes. I want you to be entirely convinced this is God's strategy for the Christian to go so that no one misses the point about God's strategy here to reach people for Jesus. It's to go and meet people on their turf. So if it feels like I'm hammering this point home, it's because I am. In fact, the whole pattern in this book of Acts is that believers gather together 11 times. Luke mentions this, gathering together. And then going out, usually in pairs, two by two, for support for one another to share the good news about Jesus. So you go in, you're encouraged about the good news about Jesus, and you go out and you share it with others, going to their turf. 
So why is this? Why is this God's strategy? Why go? Why not, hey, come to us. You can reach more people if you get more people in one place, right? Because come is not a compelling invitation. Think with me. How many messages in our society start with come? Right? Come in and try our new menu. You'll love it. Right? Come in for a free upgrade. Come and bring the kids to come out of bay. You'll love our fountains. Right? Come by my office and we'll talk. Right? Come inside. It's fun inside. <laughs> I've heard you know, Mickey Mouse say that about his clubhouse. All kinds of invitations that people give out. And they say, come to me. It doesn't have to be just religious. But it is true of religion, isn't it? It's true of Judaism. The Ethiopian eunuch is sufficiently familiar with the God of Israel. He's likely a God-fearer who believed in Israel's God. As he had says as it comes here in verse 27, he had come to Jerusalem. Notice, he went to a place. They said, come to us. That's because Judaism is a come-and-see religion, whereas Christianity is a go-and-tell religion. That's the strategy. For those of you who do know Jesus, consider how compelling it was that someone goad to you over coffee. They goad to you over a conversation, over a football game, to your desk, to your locker, to your world, in your language, sharing the good news as it's relevant to your life. They listen to your questions like Philip does here with the eunuch. In other words, they go to your comfort zone. They didn't ask that you enter theirs. I know that's what happened with me. That a group of young life workers, they said, I'm going to go to you. They literally house-sitted for my parents, which means they teen-sitted instead of babysitted me. Because I was a rebellious teenager, and I needed looking after. So they literally got onto my turf to share Jesus with me. I mean, I don't know how much more you can do that. And they, they paid the price. I made them pay. But that's what happens when our key strategy for reaching people with the gospel is instead, come with me to church. We want you to be welcome in our church. If this is your first time with us, we want you to feel it. Like you can bring people to church, but when that's our main strategy, we are asking people to enter our comfort zone, our territory. And that is a major ask of people, especially when, you know, a door prize or free drinks aren't involved, right? We're saying, we had to stop that policy, by the way. Just, just kidding, for those of you who are new. We live in a world where everyone at every entity is saying, I can help you, so come to me. I can make your life better. My company my corporation, my firm. We can help make your life better, so come to us. What a great strategy Jesus gives. No, go to them. Go to, on their territory. You take the initiative to be salt and light where they live. We gather inward as a church to equip you to go out. We always come in to send you out every week. This is every week we're commissioning you to be missionaries. Equipping you, sending you out. So my job is to keep equipping you, which I want to keep doing. Second point here, because Jesus Christ did go, and he made his good news clear to us, and he cleared the way for us to know God the Father forever. That should compel us to also share clearly. To share clearly. We don't know everything that Philip shared, but we see here a few approaches that he uses to share 
the good news clearly. First, Philip didn't answer questions that the eunuch wasn't asking. He first listened to questions that the eunuch had. Then he responded by sharing from that point the good news about Jesus, didn't he? So he sees, okay, what are you reading? Do you understand it? Then they read through the passage. The eunuch asks another question. Who's he talking about here? I want to find out who is this prophet mentioning from, you know, 600 years before. Interesting. Let me answer that question for you, Philip says. He starts with his question, and then secondly, Philip opens his mouth, it says here, right? And then thirdly, Philip tells him the good news about Jesus. And he gets as far as baptism, doesn't he? Which means he's explained to him what's required to make the good news of Jesus good for you. See, friends, people don't trust Jesus through osmosis, all right? They don't. You can set a great example for you with your life, and you should do that. But ultimately, you have to open your mouth and share the good news clearly, which means we have to know how to do that, don't we? So let me start by, sh- by taking you through Philip's encounter and maybe just filling in how sharing the good news with this eunuch may have gone. All right? Let's, I mean, that's where we're going to start this morning in terms of how to share the good news. So you might say, okay, Mr. Eunuch, you recognize there's a God. Because you see the ordered beauty and creation around you. These beautiful trees, the foliage around you, the water way up ahead. Not to mention this passage open before you from the Bible. So you see that there's a God, and you believe this is a God of justice, and that the person in this passage that you're reading didn't receive justice. I want to share with you why this person, this man, didn't receive it and who he is. Can I do that? Sure. Well, first of all, Jesus says in Matthew 5, verse 48, to be perfect, as your heavenly Father is perfect. See, I'm going to share with you from God's Word, Mr. Eunuch, because if I just share my opinion, you'll think, man, that guy just gave me his opinion. But I want to share with you something more reliable, something more weighty. So you'll walk away knowing, oh, he didn't just share with me his thoughts and his opinion. He shared with me what God said from his word and how it all fits together. So Matthew 5, 48, be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. See, God wants, loves us and wants to be in a relationship with us, but he demands perfection for any relationships because he is perfect. And that goes us to our problem because we are anything but perfect. In fact, in the same passage you're reading, Mr. Eunuch, Isaiah 53, verse 6, the Bible says that we all, like sheep, we've gone astray. We've each turned to our own way. We each make our own decisions and say, I want to run life my own way. I want to do things how I want to do things. I want to take the place of God. All of us do. And the the big problem with that, the consequence is death forever. Separation from God and death. Romans 6.23 says that. The consequence of sin, the wages of sin is death. Eternal separation from the one who is life and gives life. And that's a major problem. You follow me so far? Hopefully the eunuch says yes at this point. But he has this look, and I say, you know, well, Mr. Eunuch, your face tells me you might object to this. And he says, well, yeah, you know, why can't, if he's God, he's so big and so loving, why can't he just forgive people and move on with it? Because sometimes we can forgive, right? 
We can forgive and forget. Why can't God do the same? So we're in a conversation here. I say, you know, great question. So I related a little bit to real life. I say, hey, hey you know, look at this giant tree branch above us. What if we cut down this tree branch and I take this tree branch and just start beating on your chariot? All right, I just, I just take this tree branch to it. I make some dents. I take out a wheel. And at the end of it all, would you be willing to forgive me? And he might say, well, man, it'd be really hard. But yeah, I think, you know, as human beings, we, we, I could forgive you. He said, you know what? I agree, maybe you could find it in your heart to forgive me. But let me ask you something else. How are you going to get home? I said, well, I, I can't. Someone's got to pay for the, you know, i got to get these, this repair. Someone's got to pay for it. I say, exactly. Whatever's their forgiveness, there's also payment. That's how the world works. That's how our lives and the whole universe works. Everything costs something. Even energy we see in the world around us can't be destroyed, only transferred. Right? The second law of thermodynamics. I'm probably not saying that to the eunuch at this point, but I'm telling you that. You can't just get rid of something. You can transfer it. So if you do damage to the life God's given you, someone has to pay, either you or God. I want to tell you this. Because God loves you, and he sent his only son, Jesus, he is the God-man who lived a perfect life, and he raised his hand, volunteering to take the punishment that we deserved. In fact, the Bible says later in a book called uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, God made him who had no sin, who lived a perfect life, to be sin for us, to take on sin for us, so that because of Jesus, we might be right with God. See, Jesus raised his hand in the courtroom of God and said, I'll take the punishment. You are guilty, but I'll take the punishment. God denied him every form of justice, including justice for mankind, and he stood there and he took it. So that explains these verses you're reading. Like a sheep, he was led before the slaughter. Like a lamb before its shears is silent. He opens not his mouth. Justice was denied to him. Why? Because Jesus took the punishment we deserve. Justice was denied to him. God said no to Jesus so he could say yes to us. He denied Jesus what he deserves so he could freely credit to us what we don't deserve. Do you see that? Jesus proved that he did this by rising from the dead. That he's a God that could do this in our life. That could one day rise us from the dead if we would but trust him. All you have to do for God to say yes to you is trust that Jesus is who he says he is and took the punishment you deserve so that you can one day rise from death and be with God forever. You can't do anything to earn God's yes. It's a free gift. Only trust that it's true, and I hope you will. Equally, as long as you don't trust Jesus, the Bible is clear. You remain separated from God and under his judgment. So you've shared the Bible. You've shared, sorry, the gospel. We have to learn how to make this clear. Share the gospel. God is perfect. We are not. We've done damage to him. Someone who's earned credit has to pay for damages. Jesus steps in to pay the debt so all who trust in him never have to. It's a great, great news. We need to learn to share it clearly, to share it, and then as we share it, wait, just like Jesus waited for you to respond. 
So finally, thirdly, Jesus' strategy here compels us to wait for others to respond. Notice, by the way, Philip doesn't ask the eunuch if he's ready to pray a prayer. He doesn't pressure him into a decision by reminding him, you know, where are you going to go if you die right now? It's called hell, right? He doesn't say that. He doesn't beg with him or plead with him. But at every moment, it's the eunuch who responds. Do you see that in this passage? So verse 31, he says, man, I can't understand this unless somebody guides me. He displays a humble teachability that's present in no man unless God is at work. No man says, I need another man to help me through this, all right, unless God's at work. Amen? All right. The same verse, we notice that only one invitation is extended. Not Philip asking the eunuch if he'd like to invite Jesus into his heart, but eunuch invites Philip to know more about Jesus and who's behind this passage. It's the eunuch, as we see in verse 34, who displays not just a desire to know about the Bible, but who's behind it all. The who behind this good news. Philip then opens his mouth and shares. Some time elapses. And notice it's the eunuch then who responds first. I want to trust Jesus. I want to be baptized. Philip doesn't do anything except share the good news clearly. Do you see that, friends? I want you to see that. Philip is so keen to let the gospel and God the Holy Spirit do the work. He doesn't compel this man to respond. He doesn't pressure him. He doesn't corner him. So the eunuch's faith doesn't rest on Philip's persuasion, on his wisdom or his tactics or his persistence, but it rests on God's power. It's real and it's genuine. This is consistent with the entire book of Acts, by the way. I combed through this book over this last week and and saw that every gospel encounter in here, but three. So 19 out of 22 gospel encounters, it's the same thing. Go, share, let God work. Go, share, let God work. There's only a few times when an apostle will invite people to respond or plead with people for respond. Otherwise, it's a recognition that this good news message is enough to save people. It's compelling. Consider how tragic it is that Christians, and we preachers are the worst, try to get people to believe on our own strength. We try to use different tactics, my own persuading them, my own prompting, my own persistence. God's strategy, friends, is to go, share, and wait. Why does God's strategy matter so much? Because frankly, when it comes to adults and our kids hearing about the good news, we Christians tend to cop cop out. We lose confidence in the gospel and clarity about the gospel. So for instance, sharing good news with the adults, with adults. We're quick to wait, but we're very slow to go, aren't we? We give time and space for people to respond, but we cop out to a come and see strategy. Come with me sometime to church. Combine with the hope and prayer that the professional, the pastor is going to do his work and hopefully extend an altar call where he invites people to trust Jesus. If you're not familiar with this term, altar call, it's when after I explain to people the good news, I invite them to make it good for them personally, trusting their lives to Jesus by inviting people forward to accept Jesus into their heart or ask people to raise their hands as everyone else closes their eyes and pray a prayer. And we don't do that at sunrise. And there's a reason, because there's two problems with this approach. 
Number one, it's not biblical. Now, I want to say this. If you trusted Jesus because you raised your hand one day or you came down because someone said, come down, it's time to make a decision for Jesus, awesome. I'm not doubting your salvation. I'm glad that happened. But it doesn't mean that that's how we should plan it going forward. It's not biblical. The idea of an altar call started only 170 years ago by a gentleman named Charles Finney who did a lot of great work, but he liked to do something called the anxious seat. He would put people in situations where they had to make a decision for Jesus. He put people on the spot, and he said, do you want to make a decision for Jesus? Do you want to make a decision for Jesus? Then come forward. And what happens when people do that? Well, they feel pressure. And if they do come forward, is it genuine? Or is it because someone pressured them into doing so? People end up putting false confidence then in that decision. It's not, a, it's, it's not a prayer that makes you right with God. It's not raising your hand that makes you right with God. It's trusting Jesus that makes you right with God, okay? Depends way too much, this approach, on us pastors. Please don't rely on me, Brett, the elders, community group leaders alone. Please. That's what made Christianity Explored so fruitful. Because you got out there and you started to talk to people about the good news. It was awesome. That was why it was so fruitful. So with adults, I want to encourage you, go. With kids, sharing the gospel, we tend to be quick to go, slow to wait. What do I mean by that? Don't you want to have Jesus in your life, we might say to our kids? And we mean it from the heart. But I want to share with you why that kind of question might be the wrong strategy. Don't you want to have Jesus in your life? Don't you want to go to heaven? Does anyone here, if you're a Sunday school teacher, anyone here want to pray with, prayer with me so you can have Jesus living in your heart? And I would say issuing these invitations and pressuring kids to make a decision, decision happens because we get antsy. We corner kids. Why do we do this? For two reasons. One, we haven't been clear about the gospel, and we kind of know it, so we think, well, maybe if I just extend an invitation to the kid, that'll work. Like, I'll just tell him, hey, anyone want to receive Jesus? And what's going to happen? If they like and respect you, and most of you guys are likable, respectable people, they're going to say, yes, I love that person. I love my mom and dad. I love my Sunday school teacher. I respect them. I want to be like them. So yeah, 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 I want, I, want to, I want to know Jesus too without really truly responding to the good news for themselves. So here's then how you kind of do that. Share the gospel clearly and share it daily using books like uh, the Jesus Storybook Bible and continually explain how a person can respond. Then you wait and let them respond. Use open-ended questions like, hey, have you, have you ever thought about what I shared with you? about God's rescue plan? Little Jimmy? Little Sally? Was I clear in what I share with you about God's rescue plan? I wonder, maybe, maybe, you can, maybe you can say it back to me in your own words. Now, sharing the gospel the way we often do has two pitfalls that have two needs in common. We need to get confident and get clear about the gospel. And there's one simple solution to that. Practice sharing the gospel every day, starting with yourself. Practice the gospel every day, starting with yourself. God is real. He loves you. He is perfect. You and I have decided to live life on our own way and not his. Such sin, what the Bible calls sin, has separated us from God, and somebody has to pay to bring us and God back together again. Thankfully, God did so. You don't have to.
By trusting Jesus, you are delivered from the judgment to come and you're reconciled to God forever. That is good news. So practice sharing the gospel every day, starting on yourself, starting even now. I'm going to pray. And as I pray, we're just going to take a minute of silence, which eats part of the gospel. And I want you to just practice thinking on it, meditating on it yourself in silence.